Anyway, it's fun to be here. I'm excited for today because I'm talking about Acts chapter 4, and I think that's probably one of the best chapters in the Bible. I love that story, and I think it's just kind of a miraculous uh, story. So anyway... For the last few weeks, we've been talking about encountered by the Holy Spirit. And we've been talking about what happens when the Holy Spirit encounters you. And it's kind of a fun series. Last week, we talked about how sometimes when the Holy Spirit encounters you, you end up with the gift of tongues, or as another translation would say, the gift of other languages. And we talked about the beauty of that gift. On one hand, it's extremely controversial in some churches, but on the other hand, it's this beautiful gift that God used in the book of Acts as an evangelistic tool. You think, now, how in the world would that be used? But it was used as an evangelistic tool. And sometimes God will give you that gift so you can pray by yourself in private. And as Paul says, that is a gift that builds you up in your discipleship to Jesus. It's amazing that the gifts that God gives us to bless other people, but tongues is a gift that God will give to some people, and it actually blesses yourself. So on one hand, tongues is a little controversial, and today we're going to talk about boldness. Sometimes when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you get really bold, and believe me, that can be, ooh, I put my phone away. All right, one last look. That tongues can, uh, boldness can be about as controversial as uh, uh, tongues can be because some people use their boldness in a way that really isn't the best use of it. So we want to continue talking about the Holy Spirit during this series because the truth is, for many people, the Holy Spirit becomes a familiar stranger. It's somebody that you know about a little, but you don't know that much about. The problem is, in many churches in the modern West, if you stop talking about the Holy Spirit, a lot of people would never notice. You start talking about, stop talking about God or Jesus, people might say, that's a little strange. But sometimes if you stop, stop talking about the Holy Spirit, people don't even notice. So we want to pay good attention to the Holy Spirit and the work that the Holy Spirit does, and especially how he equips all of us. And I think one thing that we want to draw attention to this in this series is that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity as the Bible describes them. So person of a Trinity is someone that you can know and somebody that knows you. So often we look at the Holy Spirit as just like this force that comes upon you to give you a gift or to give you wisdom or whatever, and we forget that the person of the Holy Spirit is actually a person that you can interact with that wants to know you and be known by you. And so part of the reason we talk about the Holy Spirit is because we want to be able to recognize the voice of the Holy Spirit. So I want to begin today to kind of set up for today's message by reading a section of Acts. It's Acts uh, chapter 4, verse 23 through 31. I'm not reading the whole chapter because I'm not. Let me read it. It's really good. As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers, and they told them what the leading priests and elders had said. When they heard the report, all the believers lifted up their voices together and prayed to God, O sovereign Lord, creator of the heavens and earth, the sea and everything in them, you spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through your ancestor David, your servant, saying, Why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. In fact, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and all the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant whom you anointed. 
but everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After this prayer, the meeting place shook and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. That's a great chapter. It's a great scenario of what happened. See, earlier in the book of Acts 4, I didn't read this part, but earlier this is what happened. Peter and John are doing such an amazing job preaching the gospel that many people are coming to Christ. The church is growing. One chapter says it grew by 3,000. The next chapter says it grew by 5,000. And so Peter and John are getting the attention of all the religious leaders in the temple. They don't like what's going on. They thought they killed Jesus, so they thought, okay, maybe all this Christianity stuff would go away. But now Peter and John are what? They're doing the exact same thing that Jesus did. They're preaching the gospel. People are coming to repentance, coming to belief. And on top of it all, they're seeing miracles happen. So Peter and John pray for this one man who apparently probably can't walk. The Bible describes him as crippled. They pray for him, and he is healed. And everybody's noticing. They're like, wow, this is amazing. Look at this man. He's healed. And so what do the religious leaders do? They arrest Peter and John, but they strategically do it later in the afternoon. So they don't have time to have an arraignment, so they throw them in jail overnight. Now that throwing them in jail was kind of strategic of them, I'm assuming, because being thrown in jail back in the first century was not a luxury place to go. More than likely, the jail was underground. More than likely, the room was flooded, and you're probably standing in the ankle deep and probably some sewage. The men didn't get a room. They didn't get a bed. They didn't get a snack. They didn't get anything. They were locked up in probably pretty horrible conditions, and there's a good chance to say their hands were probably locked in chains. See, the purpose of putting them in jail was not rehabilitation. The purpose of putting them in that jail overnight was to scare them, was to give them a good threat, was to help these guys see, look, if you keep doing this, this is where you're going to spend a lot of days. And you would think that would work. You would think the next morning these guys would get up and then say, okay, the religious leaders, we're sorry for what we've done. We'll behave. We won't talk about Jesus guy. But they don't do that. They're not intimidated at all by the threats that they were receiving. They were not intimidated by throwing, be being thrown in jail. Instead, they had to stand before the whole council of the religious leaders and elders. So here's little Peter, little John, you little young men probably, and then you got this whole council of religious leaders standing out there drilling these men on what they were doing. And the question that the scripture tells us is that these leaders, they said to them, they said, by what power and authority have you done these things? That's the big question that these leaders want to know is, how'd you do that? How did you heal this man? How are you able to preach to these big crowds and see many people come to Christ? How did you do that? And I love the response in Acts 4 verse 8 that says, this is how Peter responds. It says, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I like that because, first of all, we know that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit when he got saved. That's how the things work when you surrender your life to Jesus. But then Peter got filled again. See, sometimes the Holy Spirit will come upon you to equip you to do something else that you're going to need some supernatural help with. So the Scripture's pointing out here, look, Peter, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he says to them, rulers and elders of our people, we are being questioned today because we've done a good deed for the crippled man. Do you want to know how he was healed? 
Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but to whom God raised from the dead. That's a good answer, and it's a pretty bold answer. You're standing in front of all these religious leaders and men, and you say, you remember Jesus? He's the guy you killed. But Peter had the boldness. So how does the council respond? You're kind of like anticipating how would they respond. You remember these council members? They're not happy at all. But in Acts 4, verse 13, the Passion Translation, I think, sums it up best. It says the council members were astonished as they witnessed the bold courage of Peter and John, especially when they discovered that they were just ordinary men who never had religious training. Then they began to understand the effect Jesus had on them simply by spending time with him. That's beautiful two verses. That this council of religious leaders looked at Peter and John and thought, these aren't the smartest guys. They're not incredibly trained well. In fact, they've never gone to advanced school. They didn't go to the advanced school to learn the Torah. They actually didn't make the cut. When they're looking at Peter and John saying, but you know why these guys can do this stuff? Because they spent so much time with Jesus. That's the transformation Peter and John had. They didn't have to be the smartest, but you spend time with Jesus, you're going to do the stuff that he did. That's a beautiful verse to remind us that when you spend time with Jesus, you become like Jesus. You spend time with Jesus and you start to do the exact same things that Jesus did. That's why it's so important, our discipleship to Jesus, because we become like Jesus and do the things that he did. So these council members, they don't know what to say. So they say to Peter and John, get out of the room a little bit. We're going to talk and we're going to have a discussion. So these wise men decide what they're going to do. And what they decided, their strategy is they're going to threaten Peter and John even more. They're going to threaten them. Now as one commentary points out, Jack's 4 verse 31 says they made further threats against them. So that means there was previous threats. They were threatened from the time they were arrested. They were threatened from the time they were in jail. And now they are being threatened for the response to them. And as the commentary points out, it's probably what they said to them is if you keep preaching, we're going to beat you up. If you keep preaching, we're going to harm your family. And it's a pretty good chance that the council member said to them, you know what, we have a few extra nails and some trees in the back that we can do to you the same thing we did to Jesus. Because the Bible describes these as serious threats. These men were going to risk their life if they continued. They're going to risk the health and the safety of their family if they continued. So how do they respond? On one hand, you would expect them to say, okay, I don't want to get hurt. I don't want to be put on a cross. I don't want my family hurt. I would kind of respect them if they said that because I might say the same thing. Okay. I don't know if I would have that boldness. I mean, being honest with you, I hope I would. See, sometimes intimidation is a tool that the enemy uses to make us all be quiet. I've never been intimidated for my life. I've never been intimidated someone's going to beat up my family if I keep preaching the gospel. But sometimes the enemy will intimidate me in my own head and say, well, if you do share something with somebody else, what if they think you're a nut job? Or what if you try to share the gospel with somebody else and they look at you like you're weird? 
Or what if they look at you and just mock you? Or what if worse, you kind of think, what if I try to share something with somebody and I don't know what to say? I think all of us have experienced the intimidation of the enemy to shut us up. And I love that Peter and John are so strong in the face of adversity. And what is Peter and John's response to the religious leaders when they basically say they're threatened them? In Acts 4 verse 20 it says, Peter and John say, it's impossible for us to stop speaking about the things that we've seen and heard. That's their response to being threatened. We can't stop. Jesus has done so much in our life, we cannot stop. They've been severely threatened, and they say, no, we're going to continue. These men understood what boldness is. And I think we read this and we think, I want the same boldness as Peter and John. And the good news of the gospel is we can have the boldness that they had. See, part of what happens to us when the Holy Spirit comes upon us is that we do receive boldness as well. As we read a few minutes ago, when after Peter and John, when they got back to their friends and they were telling them everything that happened, they called for a big, big prayer meeting. And I love the prayer meeting because one translation says that they raised up their voices very loud to God. That's a good translation because sometimes if you go to a really good prayer meeting, it gets pretty loud. So just remember that. Loud prayer meetings are pretty good, and I like those prayer meetings. And so what did they pray? It's kind of an interesting prayer that the Scripture tells us. It does not say that they asked God to stop the threats. It does not say that they asked God, may these council members all go away, may they just vanish, may they go somewhere else. And it never says that they prayed for protection. If they prayed for protection, that would be bad. If they prayed for the threats would stop, that would not be bad. Those are all valid prayers. But what did they pray in the face of adversity? They prayed for more boldness. They didn't pray that the threat stopped. They prayed that they would be bolder than the threats that were set against them. And they prayed for God to stretch out his hands with healing power that miraculous signs and wonders would be done through the name of Jesus. That is what they prayed when they're intimidated. They said, God, give us more boldness and give us signs and wonders. And how does God respond? In Acts 4.31, it says after they prayed, the meeting, after this prayer, the meeting place shook. And they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. That's a good prayer meeting. When the building starts to shake. I want some of those prayer meetings. Donna does too. We all do. We want to be shaken up in a few prayer meetings. That would be really good. And they preach with boldness. I think we'd all like to be Peter and John. We all want to say, I'll stand in the face of a threat and God give me more boldness. But perhaps before we continue the series, we may need to talk about what is boldness? What is the definition from boldness? Well, boldness basically in the Greek kind of means what you would expect. It means the freedom of speech. It's confidence. It's the ability to say what you want when you want. It's the ability that nothing's going to intimidate you from speaking your mind or speaking what's on your heart. One scholar notes that in the, in the Greek culture of the first century, that use of the word boldness was only reserved for high military ranking officials. That only these men at the top of the military, they could speak with that kind of boldness. And suddenly what God is doing, he's given common, ordinary men and women to speak with the same boldness that the military could speak. That's kind of powerful. 
But see, we have to be careful. This boldness gives us the ability to say anything that comes to our mind, even if it hurts a person. Does boldness give us the uh, permission to be maybe a little aggressive or maybe a little bit obnoxious? Does it give us permission to hurt a person? Or does there need to be a balance for your boldness? See, are we sometimes called to point out a person's contradictions in their life? Or sometimes we are called to say nothing. See, in Matthew 10, verse 16, when Jesus is sending out his disciples, he says, look, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. You kind of get that analogy between sheep and wolves. Wolves eat sheep. Be careful. So be as shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. I think we lose it a little bit there. How do you be shrewd as a snake and harmless as a dove? How do you do that? See, if we are going to be harmless and shrewd, it's going to take a whole lot of wisdom. See, fortunately, the book of James tells us that God will give you wisdom if you ask for it. See, God will give you boldness if you ask for it, and he's going to give you wisdom to go along with your boldness. See, James 1 verse 5 says, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God. He'll give it to you. He's not going to rebuke you for asking. God actually wants you to come and say to him, hey, I need some wisdom. See, that's a big relief because we are going to need a lot of wisdom to balance the boldness that God is going to give to us. Because we are a church that's going to receive boldness because we want boldness. And we want to see people come to Christ. We want to see the next generation come to Christ, and it's going to take our boldness, but we better have some wisdom to go along with it. See, James 3, verse 17, it tells us, what does it look like if a person has wisdom? It says, but the wisdom from above is, first of all, pure. It's also peace-loving. It's gentle at all times, and it's willing to yield to others. It's full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism, and it's always sincere. That's a great list. See, this list doesn't give person permission to be rude or angry or accusatory at somebody else. And God's wisdom doesn't give us permission to mock a person. It doesn't give us permission to belittle a person. It doesn't give us permission to, meet, to demean a person, even if we don't agree with their life or what they're doing or the choices that they're making. We need to tell the truth. But as Scripture informs us, we always need to tell the truth with kindness and gentleness and wisdom from God. See, Jesus displayed boldness, but he was always filled with kindness and gentleness. You might be saying, yeah, but I remember the story of Jesus flipping a few tables in the courtyard of the temple. Yeah, he did flip a few tables, but he did it for a good reason. He did it because those tables were blocking people from coming into the temple to receive what they needed. Jesus will always remove any barriers that prevent a person from coming to God. That's what he gave his life for. He gave his life to demolish the barriers that would separate the common person from coming into a relationship with God. Jesus would destroy the barriers that are, going to pretend, that are going to prevent your wholeness and healing and restoration. But he does it with kindness. And Jesus never mocked people. He never belittled people. He never demeaned a person. But yet he was bold. 
you know how kind and compassionate Jesus is because the Bible tells us that women brought their infants and children to Jesus to hold them. I can tell you one thing about a mother. They don't let anybody hold their infant. They guard their infant like a mama bear. Thank you, Kim. Women don't let anybody hold their infant. You kind of got to go through the test. Women get boldness when it comes to their infant and protecting. But they bring their infants to Jesus because they knew he was kind and he was gentle. And he was bold. But they knew he was kind and gentle. There's a lot we can learn from the way Jesus treated people especially the marginalized people. See, Jesus was filled with the fruit of the Holy Spirit, as Galatians 5, verse 22 says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See, perhaps we are being called to display gentle boldness. See, look what Peter says in 1 Peter, verse 3. It says, but even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what the good life you live because you belong to it. Christ. See, again, Peter says, live with boldness. Live in the boldness of the midst of threats, but make sure you do it in a gentle and respectful way. That's a good word. Peter was not the only one that talked about gentleness and kindness. Paul gives a very similar message to young Titus. Your young Titus is going to be sent as a missionary into a, a, a people group that is known for immorality. And Paul's words to Titus is, you must teach these things and encourage a believer to do them. You have the authority to correct them when necessary. And don't let anyone discard, discard what you say. Remind the believers to submit to the government and officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. They must not slander anyone and must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. Again, that's kind of good words to live by. Don't slander anyone. Avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. Maybe that should be a little requirement if you're going to be on social media. Yeah, Kim likes that. Don't slander people. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle and show humility. But that's hard to do. It's hard to balance boldness and gentleness. But we have to remember it's about people. It's not always about being right. It's about other people. See, it's important that we are gentle, but it's also important that we understand the needs of the people that we're trying to be bold with. See, recently in 2021, Dr. Kara Powell from the Fuller Theological Seminary Youth Institute 
which is a pretty good youth institute. They have a lot of good records and a lot of good monitoring they're doing about youth and the culture. And yeah, good, good old Fuller. So anyway, she, she wrote this book with another guy, Brad Griffiths, called big, The Three Big Questions That Change Every Teenager. It's an amazing book because the book was uh, compiled by years of research of Gen Z. Gen Z is our population that was born after the year 2000. So this whole survey was how to, to really understand Gen Z, understand what they're all about, understand what they like and what they don't like. And so what they did is they interviewed over 2,200 youth from all across America. They had a good, the good ratio of ethnic groups, and, and some of the people in the survey, they would actually spend up to six hours questioning them. Not all at one time, but they would break it up to get really a good understanding. So this was some really deep research that Fuller did, and their youth institute is kind of known for doing a lot of deep research. So after all the research was done, they came up with basically three questions that all teenagers keep asking. Three questions that teenagers want to know the answer to. Three questions that pretty much, no, we're not there yet. Oh yeah, we're almost there. So three questions that they all is on the top of their mind at all times. But before I tell you about these three questions, I want to tell you about the three observations that the study made of the youth of the Gen Z culture. The three traits of Gen Z that they came up with is number one, they're anxious. Now they're anxious, that's a deal with a lot of anxiety. That's not a big surprise if you're here. A couple weeks ago I talked about the Barna Research Institute that talked about Gen Z is a very anxious uh, group of people. They deal with a lot of high anxiety. See, this is a generation that often feels like they're not good enough. So many people in the survey, that's how they describe themselves. I'm not good enough. They feel like they're lacking something. Many in this population, they deal with a lot of external stressors, a lot of things that stress them out, which sooner or later they become internal stressors. This is a generation that grew up worried that they could get shot in school. My generation, we did a couple fire drills a year. Nobody's worried about that. It's a whole lot different when you have to be prepared. What would you do if a shooter comes into your school? And then you can read shootings that happen. That's not... Yeah, I don't see schools burning. You don't see that on the news, but you definitely see kids getting shot in school. This is a generation that has to deal with that kind of anxiety. This is a generation that almost has too many, too many options. See, before in the 80s and 90s, the study was showing that so often that kids after they graduated from high school had a pretty linear path. It was pretty easy. You're either going to go to college or you're going to go to the workforce or maybe the military or get married. There weren't that many options. It was a little easier decades ago. But this emerging generation, they have a lot more options. And that actually stresses people out. Yeah, you think options are good, but sometimes too many options can be very stressful. And that's what this generation's dealing with. A lot of people on this generation, what they're going to do in their future after high school, some of what they're going to do isn't even on the map. They're going to be bouncing outside the borders of the map. They're going to take a kind of a circuitous route or pathway that's sometimes going to lead them in a very unique way. The future for our young people is a lot more unique than maybe it was when I was in college. And COVID wasn't very nice to this generation either. 
We still don't know all the effects that COVID's going to have on people, but according to the CDC, during the pandemic for young people, anxiety tripled and depression quadrupled. I'm not good. Now, you don't have to feel all sorry for this generation and feel like, oh boy, we're just going to have to like, you know, just coddle them. This next trait about this generation Z uh, is they're adaptive. They're adaptive. This generation knows how to deal with anxiety, but they are also an incredibly powerful generation. Fuller describes Generation Z as creative, talented, resilient, problem solvers, opportunity creators with a strong desire to serve. Most cultural commentators are saying, this is a generation that can change the world. They know resilience. They know how to change things. They know how to pivot. But see, another good thing about this Generation Z is that they are diverse. They're a diverse group of people. If you look at the U.S. Census, you're going to find in 2020, 50% of people under 18 are white, and 50% of people under 18 are people of color. So you're going to see this is a very diverse population. A lot of the people that grow up in this generation, they are the people that want to see racial justice and racial reconciliation. This is a generation that can do it. This is a generation that has creativity and resilience. And they also want to see justice. And we need to make sure that the gospel of Jesus Christ is presented to this generation. This generation cannot miss out on the gospel. This is a generation that's grown up with technology. They know the internet. They know the internet well. This is a generation that has respect for Jesus, but they don't have a whole lot of respect for a lot of Christians. This is a generation, they like Jesus, they're not most sure that they like Christianity. This is a generation that can watch pastors with hateful speech on YouTube and hear the hateful things that pastors say about the LGBTQ community. This is a generation that watches what pastors say about transgender population, and this emerging generation doesn't want to be part of that. This is an emerging generation that they respect if you want to have your own social sexual ethic. They're okay with that. But this is a generation that says don't mock and belittle and demean other people. This is an interesting generation. There's a very famous pastor in Northern California. Probably every pastor in America probably knows this man's name. They probably read his commentaries. They probably have commentaries in their library that are written by this man. He's a noted scholar. He's a brilliant man. He's an older man. I've quoted him before. But the emerging generation doesn't like him because of the hateful speech that he uses. And one generation respects this man because he's a scholar. And the emerging generation says, but he's hateful. He says things about people. He demeans people. He says derogatory statements about people groups. And this younger generation says, no, we're not going to tolerate that. Don't be mean to people. Show kindness. Sure, I don't mind your sexual ethic, but you better show compassion and kindness. 
They like Jesus, but they're turned off by Christianity. This emerging generation is so sick and tired of hypocrisy in the church. I'm bringing a lot of this up because I talked to you about in, a, in, in September, we're having a big event at the Van Andel Arena called The Send. And The Send is all about equipping the emerging Generation Z to go and to be sent out into the world. We want to be part of that. Tomorrow I'm going to go to a pastor's meeting. Lori Dittmar is coming with me. A pastor's meeting about preparing churches to be involved with The Send. The goal is that the Van Andel Arena would be filled up. It's basically a 10-hour prayer meeting. And there's going to be worship. There's going to be leaders. There's going to be speakers. And we want to equip the next generation. See, before there was the send, there was the call. And for decades, they did the call, starting in Pasadena, California, at the Rose Bowl. And they did these massive outreaches where youth would flood to huge stadiums like the Rose Bowl. How many people fit in the Rose Bowl? 110? The expert right there. They packed the place out with youth wanting to respond to the call. And then after the call, there was the call school, which you can thank my mother-in-law and father-in-law for starting, and Becky and I had a little role in that as well. And now comes the send. These young people have been called, and now we're sending them out. And we're going to go because we are want to be with the young people as well. And we want to be part of sending them. We want to be part of mentoring and discipling. So I'm going to buy a bunch of seats in the... And the Van Andel, and then, and then we're, we're going to sell them here. They're only like 20 or 25 bucks. It's a 10-hour event. You maybe you want to go for an hour or two. But anyway, they're only doing this in four cities in America. One of them's Grand Rapids. We want to take hold. If the God's going to fill that stadium in Van Andel, we want to be part of that. So we want to understand this emerging Gen Z so we can speak into them, so we can love them, so we can be parents to them. So now what are the big three questions that these youth have according to the Fuller Seminary? The first question is identity. Who am I? This is a young generation that's trying to figure out who am I? They want to figure out what, 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 what is your view of yourself? See, so often identity is formed by what you think about yourself and what other people think about you. Usually identity is formed by those two things coming together, what you think about yourself and what others think about you. That's why this generation feels pretty inadequate. A lot of people have said not so, such kind things about Gen Z, and they hear that. We want that to change. We want the people to be the people that speak encouragement and life into the emerging generation. See, the next thing, the, the next big question that they have is belonging. Where do I fit in? How do I connect with other people? Where's my place in this world? What's my pur purpose in this world? This is a, the third part, purpose. This generation wants to know what's my purpose, but they also want to know how can I make a difference? This generation just doesn't want to fit in. They want to make a difference. They want to make a con contribution to this world. Remember, this is a generation that's creative and very agile. They have those two characteristics that go together so they can actually make a difference. They're kind of set up with the ability to make a difference. 
And so as followers of Jesus, part of our goal, part of our responsibility is to be able to answer these questions. See, when we're speaking with young people, we have to remember that we are presenting a gospel that can answer these questions. See, one young man in the survey, he said something very profound to the researchers. He said, I'm very tired of my pastors trying to answer questions that I don't have. Whoa, picking on pastors. But it's great. He said, I'm tired of people trying to answer questions I don't have. I want you to answer those. I want you to help me figure that out. See, this emerging generation, as a Barna research poll pointed out, they're not that concerned about what's going to happen when they die because they know that's 40, 50 years down the road. They want to know how they're going to get till Tuesday. Tell me, how does the gospel inform me of my identity or my belonging or my purpose? That is what this emerging generation says that they want to know. But see, this generation, how they're not going to respond to preaching this generation is going to respond to two things the research has shown. They respond to authenticity and they respond to vulnerability. If you want to speak into Generation Z, you better be authentic and vulnerable. See, if you want to speak into Generation Z, you need to tell them how you discovered your identity, how you discovered your belonging, how you discovered your purpose. And these people want to know who is Jesus to you. Why do you love Jesus and why do you follow Jesus? See, one of the most important things that this generation wants to do is they want to figure out how do you belong? How do you belong? See, so many churches in the modern West, we made a condition for you to belong. So often in our church culture, we say, you know, the first thing that you need to do is you need to behave. If you come to our church or you come to our, our community, you better behave. And then after you behave really well, then you better believe the right thing. Then after you believe the right thing, then you can belong. That's how a lot of churches treat people. That's how a lot of churches treat the younger generation. I don't know how many of you watched the movie, The Jesus Revolution. You might remember in that movie, the church was having young people come to the church, and the church flipped out. Why? Because their carpet was getting dirty. Youth were coming to this church and they were more worried about their carpet than the souls of these young people. Maybe that's why Jesus washed a lot of people's feet. See, Jesus' model wasn't you first behave, then you believe right, then you belong. Jesus' model flipped that. Jesus said, first, you belong. That's the first thing that Jesus showed people. You belong. Why do you belong? Because you're created in the image of God. If you're born, you're created in the image of God, and Jesus says because of that you belong. See, Jesus pur purposely reached out to people that other people wouldn't reach out to. Jesus reached out to prostitutes. He reached out to a woman caught in adultery. He reached out to a Samaritan woman at a well. He reached out to who? The demon-possessed people. Jesus re reached out to the blind and the sick and the crippled. What's the one thing that Jesus showed all these people? He showed them that they belonged. He didn't first question their beliefs and their behavior. He first said, you belong, irregardless of how they were going to respond to him. 
His actions were never based on behavior belief. This is how Jesus responded to people. In Acts 10, it, or Mark 10, it tells us about the rich young ruler that came to Jesus for an answer. And it says, looking at this man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. Jesus just looked at him. This man was a sinner. From all we know, this man did never follow Jesus, but it says Jesus loved him. Jesus always shows love first. See, so often we say, well, who's going to tell this person they're wrong? You can't love them first. You've got to first tell them you're wrong. That's kind of what trips us up and sometimes in our culture. We can't change a person's behavior. We can't change their decision-making, but we can show them love and kindness and then let the Holy Spirit do the work that he's going to do. So often we try to be the Holy Spirit. Well, we show love. We show kindness. We show compassion. See, this generation wants to change the world. They want to be world changers. And that's something that we need to celebrate. That's something we need to encourage the next generation to do it. See, at the end of this whole survey and this, uh, this whole, uh, put all the research together, they discover something very interesting. See, these three questions that Generation Z struggles with, are the exact three questions that every person struggles with. These three questions are not just for young people. It just so happens that Gen Z, it's much more on their head. It's much more, as they would describe, it's a boiling point in their life because they're trying to figure out their future. Every single one of us is trying to figure out our identity. We're trying to figure out our purpose and our sense of belonging. And the truth is, you don't just figure this out as you get older. Sometimes we even struggle with this even at 56 years old. Sometimes you can question my identity, who am I? Or your belonging, or your purpose. We can all struggle with that. What Generation Z wants to know is that I struggle with you. I don't have all these answers. But see, if we are going to be bold and honest with the next generation and show humility and vulnerability, they want us to tell them, our story. How did you get to the place that you're at? How do you deal with your sense of inadequacy? How do you deal with a voice in your head that says, I'm not good enough? See, there's one thing that the Fuller Institute study researched. They showed one superpower that we can all have. The one superpower that we can have to reach the next generation, to reach the other people is empathy. Wow. They describe something as simple as empathy as a superpower. What is empathy? The dictionary says empathy is the action of understanding. Being aware of, being sensitive to, and vicariously experience the feelings, the thoughts, and the experiences of another. Whoa. That's kind of powerful. To vicariously experience the feelings, thoughts, and experiences of another person. That's a superpower. How do you do empathy? You got to listen. 
We've got to listen to people. And we don't listen to people so we can respond with a quick answer, a quick rebuke. We listen to people so we can understand them. We listen to other people so we can vicariously experience the feelings, thoughts, and experiences of another person. Empathy always happens by listening, by asking more questions. Maybe instead of slandering a person, we think, what would it be like to be them? What would it be like to experiencing the challenges that they're facing? What would that be like? I think that might help us to be a kinder generation if we would say, let me vicariously try to think about what it's like to be you instead of me telling you what I want you to become. This generation, people are fully aware of their deficits. They're trying to know, how does Jesus give me identity? How am I good enough because of Jesus in my life? You explain that to me. You explain to me how I belong because of my relationship with Jesus, and you better start showing it in your churches that you belong. And how do I see my purpose because I'm a follower of Jesus? See, the boldest thing that, the boldest thing that we can do and the superpower that we have is empathy. I think another bold thing that we can do is to tell our own story with honesty. Tell your own story of identity, belonging, and purpose. And the thing is, none of us are finished with our story. We're all still working on it. Those of us who are really honest would probably say, I feel like I'm in Gen Z. Amen? A lot of you here feel like you're in Gen Z. You kind of feel the same things. And that's okay. This generation wants you to be honest and vulnerable with them. But see, sometimes our biggest hindrance, sometimes the biggest threat that we hear in our head is afraid to tell our own story, afraid to tell what Jesus has done in our life. I love how the book of Acts ends. It ends with Paul, and he's in Rome. The last chapter of the book of Acts says, Paul lived there two whole years. I don't have that here. Acts 28, verse 30 for 31. It says, Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense. And he welcomed all those who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching others about Jesus Christ without, with all boldness and without hindrance. With all boldness and without hindrance. We want to be a people. We want to be a community that shows gentle boldness without hindrance. That's who we want to be. That's who Gen Z needs. God freely gives boldness. And he freely gives wisdom. And he freely will give us the ability to empathize with other people. But I think our biggest struggle is sometimes listening. Sometimes it's hard to listen. So I want to close today by asking the Holy Spirit to come here and to minister to each of us. We've heard a lot of things in this teaching today. I hope it impacted you. I hope it made you think. I hope it made you wonder. I hope it didn't bore you. I hope you didn't turn me off at home. Nikki, I hope you're still there. Lori, I hope you're still there. Probably my sister's still watching. She's faithful. 
Good old sister. And hopefully other people, Megan, you're probably watching. Hey, Megan, I hope you're doing well. But I don't want to just leave here and say that was a nice message. You know, we, you know, it's only 1033. There's plenty of time to eat our potatoes. Should not have said that. Now you're all like, potatoes? Don't forget, we have lunch downstairs. You online, you can turn me off if you come here quickly. But let's ask the Holy Spirit to minister to each of us. Because we want to be, we want to figure out our questions, but we also want to help other people figure out their questions. If we're going to present the gospel to somebody, we've got to know the questions they're asking. I love how that one kid said, I'm sick of my pastor preaching about things that I don't care about. Yeah, those other pastors. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and we thank you, Lord, that you are good and faithful that you're kind and loving. And God, we know that your Holy Spirit is here with us, but God, I ask for a powerful manifestation of your Holy Spirit to come in our time together, that you'd minister to each person here and each person that's home. I pray that you'd minister to the children and the teachers that are with our kids right now. God, I pray that you'd visit our children with your Holy Spirit and equip them and empower them in a way that they don't even expect right now that it's happening. We pray that our children would grow up and they would be bold, that they would be without hindrance. We pray for our children that are in that room, I think there's six of them in there, that, Lord, the questions that they have, they're part of Gen Z, that they would find the answer to early in their life, that they would find their identity and their purpose and belonging very early in life, that these questions would be answered, that you'd watch over our kids and that you'd supply the right mentors and the right voices to speak into their life. We pray that you'd protect them from the voices of the enemy that would make them feel less than, but you'd fill them with people and voices that would say you are good enough because of what Jesus is doing in your life. So we come to you now, Lord, as Peter, as James and, uh, and Peter and John came before you and ask God that we ask that you'd fill each of us with boldness, that you would equip us with boldness, but God, I also pray that you would stretch out your hands with healing power and may signs and wonders be done through us in the name of Jesus Christ. God, I'm asking for each person here to be equipped with the superpower of empathy. I love how Fuller said that, a superpower called empathy. May we be a people that empathize with other people. May we, may we be a people that before we would say something rude or, or, or mean or unkind, may we think, what's it like to be that person? May we be kind and gentle. May we exhibit the fruit of the Holy Spirit in every single thing that we do. And God, would you give us the ability to listen? Would you give us the ability to listen to understand? Would you give us the ability to respond with kindness and gentleness and self-control? Would you give us the ability to be vulnerable and honest? Give us the ability to show humility. God, empower each of us by your Holy Spirit. God, we don't, we want to see Gen Z fill their destiny. We want to see them to use their creativity and their agility to change the world. We want to see Gen Z leading us into racial reconciliation. And we want Gen Z to be filled with your Holy Spirit and filled with the power of God. God bless this generation. And may they do more than the previous generation.
Help us to know how to pray for them. And God, I do pray for each person here. Lord, each of us have our own needs today. It might be physical, it might be emotional, it might be spiritual. Some of us are weighed down or discouraged. Some of us are wondering, what's my identity? God, would you bless each person here and watching online with the peace to know that you are good and faithful and kind and that you are with us at all times. May we sense your Holy Spirit even working in our heart right now. May we sense your Holy Spirit even doing a work in us that we don't even anticipate this morning. Becky, wrap it up. And the Lord says to Generation Z, I have called you for this time. He is the one who raised you up. He is the one who, brought, who gave you adaptability. He is the one who has taught you to pivot. He knew what he was doing when he birthed Generation Z. They are here for a reason. They are here for a purpose. They are not a lost generation. He has already called them. He has already brought them forth. He is the one who has given them the traits that he has given them. He is the one who has given them the power to change the world, and they will change the world. God says to us, do not do not fret over this next generation. Do not fret, for I have a great work in store for them, says God. I have a great work that I have already begun. And yes, the enemy is coming after them like he has not come after a generation before, and they are dealing with things that other generations have not dealt with. But I have birthed them for such a time as this. I will raise them up. I will give them strength. And I am calling this church to understand that. And I have called people into this church that will be able to minister to them, that will be able to guide them into their destiny for I have a destiny that is far beyond what anyone in this congregation even understands or that this world understands this is my world changers that are being raised up in this time and in this hour do not fret says God Amen. appreciate that word I agree thank you so much for sharing that thank you all for participating like I said we love you